When dawn gave way to morning, the songwriter heard the chirps of bluebirds. On this episode of Hear Tell, a story about a songwriter with a troubled past who never believed he could be a father. When he looked at the nest, he didn't just see the bluebirds. He saw the sanctuary of family. But he finds someone he can love more than the rain. My name is Andre Galland. I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. The show is a project of the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction, housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. My guest today is Max Blau, a 2018 graduate of the program. He's an independent journalist based in Atlanta, Georgia. Max often covers public health stories about rural medical care and the systemic degradation of the environment. His stories appear in publications like Atavist, ProPublica, Atlanta Magazine, and Georgia Health News. But Max got his start as a journalist writing about music, which brings us to this episode. Max is going to read and talk about a story called How Jim White Helped His Bluebird Spread Her Wings, originally published on the website The Sunday Long Read. It's the story of musician Jim White, who's known for penning songs about the South's strange characters and his relationship with his daughter Willow. It's a story about the tribulations of custody after parents split. It's also about how parents must understand their role with clear eyes as their children form their own identities. Max spent a few years interviewing Jim and Willow for the piece, squaring their accounts with family members and fact-checking via court documents. The result is a story that shows how difficult it is to build nests instead of cages for our baby birds. Max and I discussed the relationship between investigative reporting and profile writing, the shared qualities between songwriting and narrative storytelling, and how he personally connected to the story of Jim and Willow. That full conversation will air in another episode of Here Tell. This one's all about Jim and his bluebird. Bluebird on a telephone line How are you? I'm feeling fine Sweetly do I whisper your name Jim White is a particular type of Southerner, uh, certainly so as a performer, like um, and the archetype of the outsider artists. But your piece shows that Jim, uh, Jim White, the father, is much more complicated, perhaps, than the character of Jim White, the musician. So as you set out to report this piece, who was Jim White to you? And what about him? attracted you to him as a subject? For maybe four or five years, I I had been a fan of Jim's music. And, you know, I think anyone who is a fan of Jim White, the artist, is a fan of Jim White as an outsider. Um, You know, that is his identity, his persona as as a performer. And I was at a show in 2016 uh, at the Grocery on Home in Atlanta. And he was performing in a way that was more earnest than I had seen him perform in the past. Um, you know, in particular at the show, he was 
um, you know, he had kind of set aside at the towards the end of the show his persona as like this outsider storyteller and was talking about his daughter who was there that, that evening. And it was a, a really earnest and like profound moment for myself and for the other people in that room to kind of hear him bear this truth that he had not really shared with many people outside of his own family uh, that night. And so I was really, something about that moment really spoke to me and made me want to know more about who Jim was as a normal person, you know, once he was off the stage and, and to learn more about kind of the, the ups and downs of his relationship with his daughter. So it was that night when you kind of became aware that there was uh, so much more going on in his life. I, I, I knew the sketches of it, but, you know, this was for, for anyone who, you know, this was this was sort of the beginning of me learning the full story. Um, it was and, and to some degree, Jim was also learning like the some of the, the secrets that are revealed in that story that test his relationship with his daughter kind of in the months that followed that moment. So when I I the next day I, I had reached out to the uh, owner of that venue who who I had known from reporting in the past and asked if he could put me in touch with Jim. And a few days later, I drove up to to meet Jim at his house and met Willow and kind of just kept talking to them. What I thought was going to be a story I might have spent a couple of months on turned into a year, turned into two years. And over time, like I got to watch Willow and Jim, um, develop a relationship that they had not had a a stronger relationship than they had had previously. And through that also was able to tell the story of how, um, tell, to to tell the story of an outsider artist's, um, way into the center of his daughter's life, which, um, ultimately seemed to be the most compelling story of Jim's life from my perspective. Um, despite all the other ones he had told about, you know, murderers and, you know, kind of people, all these fictional characters that he had created over the course of his uh, songwriting career. I wonder if it was difficult for you or what kind of challenge it presented to kind of uh, parse the, the, the song from the real person as you were getting to know Jim and Willow. It was it was at first. I mean, one as many artists do, you know. The I think there's an idea to. It is easy to see the person on stage as as the same person who is off stage, uh, especially when they are. Um, in the case of Jim, is blurring blurring the lines in the songs, kind of pulling from, you know, the truth he's experienced in the world, but either uh, in some cases. Ter- fully fictionalizing his characters based off of those experiences. In some cases, the songs are based on a true story. And in some cases they are a true story. So as a narrative nonfiction writer, I had to kind of grapple with what was truth and what was based on truth. And um, it it was a really interesting reporting process in that way, trying to verify like um, 
kind of there's also to in a sense like what was true to Jim White, an artist, and Michael Pratt, the the, the father who lived in Winterville and is on like who who like kind of when he goes home is is this ordinary guy who is trying to you know get food on the table for his kids and get his kids to school and do all the things any father has to do. For folks listening, they may or may uh, not know about your 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 body of work, but um, you're best known, f- you know. I, I think, I guess, in my opinion, um, as, as as kind of an expert journalist covering uh, various public health crises, uh, including uh, you know uh, medical uh, care access in rural communities in the South, uh, coal ash in South Georgia. Uh, and of course, um, the devastating op- opioid epidemic over the years. When you're writing a intimate personality portrait like this one, what's similar and dissimilar about how you approach uh, the reporting and the storytelling? Um, it's interesting because I would say, I mean, pri- the way I got into healthcare reporting was. Um, originally I was a music journalist and one of the things that drew me to be a healthcare reporter was writing about, you know, back when I was primarily a health, uh, um, back then when I was primarily a music journalist, um, this was prior to the full, like to Obamacare, Obamacare just come into, um, into law, um, but it was still being challenged and musicians, you know, like many um, artists um, were either uninsured or poorly insured. And the I was really fascinated in particular by the way like artists struggled with addiction or various um, barriers to getting barriers to treatment for addiction or mental health um, issues. And, you know, I, I kind of see this story as an extension of, of that earlier work of writing about people like Jason Molina, Mark Linkus um, from Sparkle Horse, um, two artists who had died due to various healthcare conditions, um, addiction and, and um, suicide respectively, um, but had also struggled like to, like to find treatment or help um, during the course of their struggles. And as I moved more, I mean, to get to get to your question of how I approach this differently, I, 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 I see the story, you know, I see music and medicine almost as, I mean, they're, they're both very narrative by nature. I see the story of writing an artist profile as one of like, there is the, the Wikipedia or like, you know, press release sketch of an artist's career. But if you really dig deeper than that, you often find an artist making a series of choices in pursuit of expressing their truth or their creativity and making sacrifices along the way. One of the things I really found compelling about Jim was this tension that 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 exists in the story of in his story of wanting to create art and to to express himself and to find wider audiences how that conflicted with his um you know, his choice to become a dad and 
to be present in his daughter's life and to, to create space for both of those things. I think similarly, healthcare journalism is also and stories that are about systems or about towns or those are also stories about choices made and sacrifices between, um, in some cases, politics and and healthcare or, or getting the right treatment at the right time. In some cases, it's about, um, you know, stigmas and, and, and people kind of brushing up against systems not built to understand their conditions. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated whether it's about, you know, about access, access to health or about access to performing on stage. Like, like, like there's often just a series of choices that fascinate me and, and often in the ways that they shape uh, people's lives. And so I, I kind of see that as a common thread between those two. So Jim White is a musician and Willow is his daughter. And is there anything else that we need to know before we hear the story? Jim, Jim and Willow are not only just a father and a daughter, but they're both musicians in their own right. And um, part of their, a fundamental part of their relationship is how they each grow together on and off stage. And I think um, that was one of the things that drew me to them in reporting and writing the story. And I hope that's one of the things that stands out and um, to anyone who's listening to this. And now here's Max Blau reading how Jim White helped his bluebird spread her wings. She sets up funny and I put it in the song. It's called Bluebird. Fifteen years ago, on the outskirts of the tiny railroad town of Winterville, Georgia, Jim White bought a rundown house. It needed a fresh coat of paint and a new kitchen floor, but the bones seemed strong. Down the gravel driveway, past the tall pines, he could stare out at a secluded acre of land backed by hayfields. In the quiet night of the country, he could see the stars shining like lights through heaven's floor. When dawn gave way to morning, the songwriter heard the chirps of bluebirds. When he first moved there, Jim's seven-year-old daughter, Willow, ran freely and fearlessly below their wings. Of the many nicknames Jim had for her, Charmetta, Ballerina, Tiki Bird, one stuck out from the others. Bluebird. Early on, he spotted the birds flying to the top of a pole near the end of his driveway. Curious, he propped up the ladder against the pole and scaled its rungs. Three powder blue eggs rested inside the nest. The sight of them got Jim thinking about how he and his Robin, his new wife, were trying to have a child of their own. When he looked at the nest, he didn't just see the bluebirds. He saw the sanctuary of family. For much of his adult life, Jim searched for his place in the world while making art from the trash other people left at flea markets. As he wandered the country, talking with people on the margins of society, he sketched their worlds into backstories of his song's fictional characters. 
such as fugitive preachers, silver-tongued saints, and lovesick murderers. Over time, Chim had learned to stand tall during his personal storms, drawing artistic inspiration from them. The writing had comforted Jim during his many personal and professional crises. And when he bought the house in Winterville, he was in the middle of a protracted custody battle with Willow's mother. The fight, fierce as a Category 5 hurricane, would shape his daughter's upbringing and his identity as a parent. This struggle, and untold others to follow, would test the limits of the bond between father and child. Jim eventually noticed the bluebirds catch the eye of a scruffy tomcat that wandered around his land. Concerned, Jim built a barrier of chicken wire around its base to shield the birds. That spring, fledglings hatched from their eggs, chirping blissfully as their mother carried food and fresh bedding to the nest. One day, when Jim checked the nest, the fledglings were gone. The cat was there, prowling, before it heaved a slimy mass. Six pairs of wings, feathers and feet, beaks and bellies, heads but no heartbeats. Jim tried to keep a stoic front, but it was as if that tomcat had dug his claws deep into Jim's brain, ripping his fantasies of future peace to shreds. Jim didn't turn to prayer in dark times, not after growing disillusioned with his upbringing in a Pentecostal church. Searching for comfort, he'd sing the words he'd once written about Willow, finding solace in his lyrics. Bluebird on a telephone line How are you? I'm feeling fine Sweetly do I whisper your name The year before Willow was born, Jim was turning a corner as a professional artist. After cycling through a half dozen occupations, from landscaper to surfboard laminator, to sustain himself while making art, he convinced a boutique label run by the talking heads David Byrne to release his debut record, The Mysterious Tale of How I Shouted Wrong-Eyed Jesus, in April 1997. His sparse, country-tinged folk songs caught the ear of a New York Times critic who praised his surreal tales about angels and murder, telekinesis and chasing tornadoes, exploring gaps between reality and revelation. Despite only selling 4,000 copies, some of his earliest fans played in one of England's most popular bands of the moment, Morchiba, a trip-hop group who wanted to collaborate with Jim on his next record. But given Morchiba's hectic schedule, they could only lay down tracks in August of 1998. With any luck, the collaboration could transform Jim's critical acclaim into commercial success. Jim had developed a cult following, captivating fans with his knack for telling stories about the strange circumstances that inspired his songs. And one night in late 1997, he caught the eye of a woman named Lori who was in the audience at New York's Red Room, where she originally showed up to see the other act on the bill. A South Georgia native with long blonde hair and dreams of veterinarian school, Lori says she was struck by Jim's Nick Cave hair and textured songs about the true South, which prompted her to approach the songwriter after his set. After talking for a while, they share numbers, then dinner, then dates. In early 1998, 
a few months after dating, Jim didn't see much of a future in the relationship. But as the two seemed to be drifting apart, Lori found out she was pregnant with his child. Fatherhood never figured into Jim's plans. And just as, as he caught a professional break, his personal life now threatened to impede his artistic career. After all, how could he take care of a child? He could barely care for himself. His latest gig, driving a cab, brought him face to face with strange and sleepless nights in Manhattan. Depression's claws dug into his mind. One sudden personal crisis, the disappearance of an earlier girlfriend, pulled him to the brink of insanity. Uninsured and five figures in debt, he couldn't afford to see a doctor. Suicidal thoughts filled his mind. The plans followed. The confluence of it all left Jim feeling, as he would later describe himself during this era, like a ruined husk of a human being. In Jim's darkest hours, he found a well-worn copy of Cormac McCarthy's Sutri, which he read over and again, clinging to it like a preacher to a Bible. He also came across a Japanese surf guitar on which he wrote songs. Jim had first played guitar when he was 18, but stopped after injuring his hand on a table saw. When he picked up the guitar again, years later, he made up chords, picking his own fingering until he found interesting new sounds. As he wrote songs in the 1980s and 1990s, he eschewed the traditional structure of verse-chorus-verse-chorus-bridge-chorus. They were more like these weird Dr. Seuss-looking bonsai-type things, Jim once said in an interview. His unorthodox songwriting had led to the chance of a lifetime working with a chart-topping group. So he had a choice. He could fly to London or stay stateside in the event his daughter was born early. Though she was pregnant, Jim broke up with Lori, but he intended to be there in person for her due date in late summer 1998. Instead of playing it safe, building time in a schedule for the possibility of a premature delivery, he booked a flight overseas to record with Morchiba. It was August 20th, 1998, with two days left of recording, when the studio's phone rang. Lori had gone into labor. Jim caught the next available flight to Atlanta and raced his two-tone beige Econoline van to Valdosta. Staring into the nursery, where the baby seemed indistinguishable from each other, he couldn't identify his daughter. When he eventually held Willow, brought to him by a helpful nurse, he felt that only two things mattered. He needed Willow, and she needed him. Anxious about fatherhood, Jim wrote a song called Sweet Bird of Mystery. It had all his signatures, moments of self-deprecating wit, layers of evocative imagery, and a bittersweet musing on the brevity of life. With the fictional character stripped away, Jim now spoke directly to Willow, something he wasn't sure he'd be able to do much of, given their complicated family dynamic. Whenever he tried to practice Sweet Bird, he became a ruined husk again. His emotions were so raw that he couldn't bear to think of sharing the song with others. 
Instead of slotting Sweet Bird for his next record, he indefinitely shelved it. Of the many hats Jim had worn in his life, he now felt compelled to be a present father. But if only he were prepared. The youngest of five children, he'd spent little time around kids since leaving home as a teenager. He was now scrambling to learn how to feed, cuddle, and change diapers. Every month, he'd make the over 500-mile round trip from his hometown of Pensacola to Valdosta and back. He thought about working things out with Lori. When they argued, he fought his urge to flee, tossing drafts of goodbye letters in the trash. Jim, though, could be stubborn. A self-described hothead, he'd argued in circles with Lori. That Christmas, he stormed out of the house. He doesn't remember, years later, what the fight was about. But he walked to the Greyhound station, ready to return to Pensacola, ready to give up on Lori and Willow. He waited at the station for over an hour for a bus that had broken down outside the city, with nothing but James Taylor's fire and rain to keep him company. Then, just before the bus arrived, Lori appeared with Willow and placed Jim's daughter into his hands, gave him a kiss, and asked him to stay. The three left the station together, a family in full. My family said to give him a chance, Lori later said. He loved Willow, so we tried to be a family. Not long after that Christmas, Lori and Willow joined Jim in Pensacola. Around that time, his financial luck suddenly changed. His manager had recently called with some good news. Jim's song, Heaven of My Heart, was chosen for the closing credits for Home Fries, a major motion picture starring Drew Barrymore and Luke Wilson. The fee covered a down payment on the house. The family wasn't a unit for long. A couple of years later, Lori and Jim split, and she moved across town. While Jim was disappointed, he was relieved that Willow remained close. Between writing songs and practicing guitar, he picked up Willow from school. He took Willow to the pool. He made her favorite foods, grits, and macaroni and cheese. When he headed out on tour, he carried a photo of Willow affixed to his banjo, a reminder of who he was working for each and every night. As the years passed, Jim felt that Willow had become a bargaining chip in the estranged parents' feud. He remembers having to complete odd jobs for Lori, from feeding animals to making home repairs, in order to see his daughter. And he worried about Willow's well-being without easy access to her. But the biggest threat to Jim's relationship with Willow arrived in September 2004, when Hurricane Ivan killed dozens and caused billions of dollars in damage across the South. After the storm, Lori decided to move closer to her family in Atlanta. A fan of R.E.M.'s music, Lori was drawn towards the band's hometown of Athens and settled a short drive away in Carlton. Jim wanted to visit. He would have to drive nearly seven hours there to see Willow. So in 2006, Jim decided to pack his belongings, hit the road, and search for a house near Carlton. He ultimately settled on his fixer-upper 15 miles away in Winterville. He hardly fit into the town of a thousand residents, most far more conservative than he was, but he wouldn't dare break his promise to Willow. Wherever you go, I go.
Before Georgia, Jim parented without worry. As he followed Willow, though, Jim feared Georgia Law might not recognize him as Willow's father because she was born out of wedlock. So he changed his world to counteract society's ideas of what it meant to be an artist. He scheduled tour stops around visitation dates, and he married Robin faster than he might have otherwise, figuring a judge would look unfavorably on a non-traditional living arrangement. Perhaps most, Jim feared parental alienation when one parent plants seeds of doubts in a child's mind about the other parent. However strained the relationship was, Laura insists she refrained from talking poorly about Jim with Willow, and Jim claims the same regarding his discussions with Willow about her mother. Still, their mutual animosity was not lost in their daughter. My mom told me that my dad was the devil, she said. He was never to be trusted. Deep down, Jim desperately wanted the bond with Willow over music. He wanted to introduce her to his favorite albums. He hoped they could sing along to their car radio. He longed to teach her an instrument. But instead, he had to defend the craft that gave his life meaning. One day, Jim picked up Willow from Lori's, and he remembers Willow getting to the car, telling him, Mom says your music is really cheesy. Jim clashed with Willow when she stayed with him. At Lori's, Willow had the kind of freedom that another child might envy. I could do whatever I wanted, Willow said. I could eat whatever I wanted. Going to Jim's was the exact opposite. He had worked to establish house rules that constructed order from the chaos in his mind. These applied to her bedroom, the kitchen, and every room in between. Jim limited the amount of sugar she can eat, pushing her towards healthy foods. Willow often pushed back, believing her father's rules were too strict. Willow felt whiplash going from one home to the next, at a time when she desperately sought stability. Jim only wanted to provide clear structure for his daughter, but also knew that such rigidity could push Willow away from him and her half-sister, Sadie, who was born that summer. Fearful that Lori might move again, potentially leaving him with no easy way to establish his parental rights, Jim petitioned for joint custody in late 2006. During the proceedings, Jim's lawyer offered $500 a month in child support and pledged to pay for half of Willow's medical bills, education, and extracurricular activities. Beyond that, he wanted Lori to agree not to speak ill of him in front of Willow. The march before Willow's ninth birthday, Jim put on his dark blue suit and drove to a custody hearing at the Madison County Courthouse. An old school judge reviewing the case seemed surprised to learn that a touring artist like Jim was living anything but a rock and roll lifestyle. Jim didn't spend lavishly, he paid off his debt, and bought the truck he drove in cash. That's how we always did it, Jim recalls the judge remarking. Jim soon got the news he'd been waiting for. In the eyes of the court, he was fit to be Willow's father. As Willow neared her teenage years, life in rural Georgia left her wanting more. She remembers sleeping with Lori in the living room, huddled near a space heater during the winters. She was doing poorly in school and wanted a fresh start. So one night, 12-year-old Willow 
asked her mother if she could move to Hilton Head, South Carolina, to live with Jim's sister, Jeannie, a fifth-grade science teacher whom Willow visited on multiple occasions. Lori balked, but Willow pushed back. Their war of words escalated. Willow claims her mother told her she wished Willow had never been born. Feeling unwanted and unloved, Willow says she headed to the kitchen medicine cabinet, grabbed a ton of Tylenol tablets, and swallowed them. She stayed up all night, drawing up past the hours, while dark thoughts raced through her head. In the morning, she told her mother about the pills and was rushed to St. Mary's Hospital in Athens. The staff pumped her stomach and monitored her vitals so she wouldn't go into septic shock. Lori, for her part, disputed Willow and Jim's accounts of the fight and the aftermath. As she recalls, Willow got herself hospitalized to catch a boy's attention. As someone who lost her father to suicide, Lori insists she would never wish death upon the child she brought into the world. Willow felt hopeless about the future. The culmination of a series of suicidal thoughts. Her hospitalization triggered another visit from social services. Willow's faith in her mother was shattered particularly after Lori told social services that her daughter tried to end her life because of a boy's unrequited affection. Willow remained wary of Jim, but she needed someone, anyone, to believe him. So she went to stay with him. You're listening to Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. The show is a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. To learn more, visit bit.ly slash Podcast. You can find us on social media. We're at Podcast on all platforms. We're in the middle of a story from Max Blau called How Jim White Helped His Bluebird Spread Her Wings. It's about Southern songwriter Jim White and his daughter Willow and the many trials that pulled them apart and the love that kept them together. If you're enjoying the story, we'll have an extended interview with Max about how he wrote and reported the story in a separate episode. Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, and you won't miss it. Again, here's Max Blau. When Jim enrolled Willow in Camp Amped, a summer program where Athens middle and high school musicians learn life skills by playing together in bands, he didn't know what to expect. Willow was thrust into the role of front woman for a band called Corrosive Kiss, which recorded a version of the Black Keys' bluesy summer anthem, Tighten Up. The head of camp, Amped, later called Jim to ask, why didn't you tell me Willow can sing like that? Jim hadn't heard her sing since she was a little child, belting on a toy carry milk machine. He was dumbfounded. She sounded like a star. Jim still hoped to foster Willow's musical talent. His made-up chords were too avant-garde for her, so he showed her a couple of beginner guitar chords. He paid for drum lessons, and he scoured record stores for music by female artists with whom she might identify. I tried to show her my world had some value, Jim told me. It didn't always work. Sometimes, when Jim asked Willow if she wanted to sing on his records, she resisted. When it clashed over house rules again, Willow retaliated by asserting the only power she had, 
leaving Jim to move back in with Lori. On lonely nights at home, Jim sometimes watched old home videotapes of Willow strumming a fake guitar and speak singing into a toy microphone. He thought about Tender Mercies, a movie where a young daughter grows up unable to know her father, a washed-out country singer, severing their adult relationship. In his darkest moments, Jim would ask, is that what my future holds with Willow? In early 2011, an Atlanta promoter named Matt Arnett asked Jim to play at the Grocery on Home, an intimate venue that Matt managed. While Jim agreed to play, he made a small request. Can I bring my daughter? Jim and Willow barely talked on the 80-mile drive from Winterville. As Jim dropped off his gear and talked with Matt, Willow absorbed the room. Brightly colored folk art adorned the red brick walls, framing the mismatched chairs and sofas. A small wooden stage stood in the corner. On a metal cabinet, she saw her dad's name spelled out in colorful magnets for the evening's bill. Matt came downstairs to greet everyone and shake Willow's hand. Lonnie Holly, a world-renowned Atlanta visual artist whose career Matt managed, took a seat next to Willow and struck up a a conversation with her, inviting her to twist old metal wire into sculptures shaped like faces. After After Willow bent the wire into various shapes, Holly grabbed some paper and challenged Willow to draw an original work of her own. She had no idea Holly's sculptures stood in museums around the world. In this artistic space, the kind Jim found comfort in, Willow felt a sense of belonging. Later that night, Jim took the stage with his four-piece band and charmed the packed house with his weirdly shaped songs and wild stories. Willow was among them, smiling as she watched her dad in his element, her eyes opening to the fullness of her father's personality. On the ride home, Willow opened up to Jim for the first time. They talked about the most fundamental details of her adolescence, including her favorite musician, Kimia Dawson, whom she had discovered from the Juno soundtrack. That night, she noticed similarities between the songs played by her father and Dawson, how their poignant lyrics made up for the lack of virtuosic guitar playing. Jim was glad to hear a blunt take, as the ice was finally melting between him and his daughter. Spring was coming and he hoped he would finally spend it with his bluebird. The following year, Lori moved to Johns Creek an affluent Atlanta suburb located 90 minutes west of Winterville. Despite Willow's budding relationship with her dad, she was happy to go with her mom, whose relationship had improved since their blowout fight. She hoped her decision might lead to new friends, a nicer school, a better quality of life. But Willow struggled in her new world, losing touch with old pals and getting bullied by new peers on Yik Yak, an anonymous social media app. To offset some of her living costs, Willow worked after-school shifts at a hibachi grill. Her lack of focus on school 
along with untreated health issues like pneumonia and an abscessed tooth, caused her to fall behind in school. After failing classes her freshman year, social workers interviewed Willow, looking for potential red flags about her life at home and at school. Feeling isolated, Willow stayed in her bedroom and focused on her music, building off those camp-amped lessons. Eventually, she set up a camera to film and record an original. On YouTube, she posted a song titled, You're Not Mine, writing, This is a song I put a lot of heart into. Viewers responded warmly. You're going to be famous, one wrote. She kept posting videos of her singing and playing an acoustic guitar. Her videos garnered thousands of views. As Willow grew more confident, she took her songs from the bedroom to local stages. But some of her most memorable onstage performances weren't covers, but collaborations with her dad. In December 2012, on one of her first visits with Jim since moving to Johns Creek, Willow returned for another show at the grocery. On Jim's song, Fruit of the Vine, she sang harmonies from her seat on a couch next to the stage. Her dad strummed his guitar, tapping his brown shoes to keep time while she belted out the chorus. The next time they returned, Willow brimmed with confidence, backing up her dad on another one of his songs, If Jesus Drove a Motorhome. She was starting to steal his thunder, and Jim, always a reluctant performer, didn't mind. The grocery shows had become their equivalent of a father-daughter dance. Willow began spending more time at Jim's house. With each visit, she left more of her belongings, clothes first, then guitar amps. And in the summer of 2014, just before Willow's 16th birthday, Jim registered Willow as a student at Cedar Shoals High School in Athens, a short drive from Winterville. Lori strongly objected, as Willow would be moving out again. But Jim felt it was time for Willow to start charting her own course. To guide Willow through the darkness of mental illness that ran in the family, Jim felt he needed to be her guardian. So he sued for primary custody of Willow, claiming that Lori had grown emotionally and mentally unable to adequately care for their daughter, according to court filings. Lori balked, responding that Jim had violated their previous custody agreement. She alleged that Jim had underreported his songwriting income and downplayed how often he was touring, accusations that Jim denied. In an affidavit, Willow weighed in, saying, I want to live with my father and for him to have custody of me. I want to make my own choice when to visit my mother. That winter, a Fulton County judge agreed and made Jim her primary guardian. His world further changed to accommodate Willow. He scaled back tour dates. He urged his neighbor, who owned an Italian restaurant, to hire his daughter. He used Facebook to source parenting advice. But as Jim's world changed, some things remained the same. The early pattern of clashes between Willow and Jim resurfaced. Not only did she take issue with the logic behind his parenting, she struggled with her father's inability to articulate that his choices were act of love, not acts of punishment. 
Jim could be stoic, tough even, Willow felt. They tried adjusting to one another, but their disputes, even small ones, grew worse. They barely spoke. The tension grew to the point where Willow, now 16, asked her dad if she could get a place of her own. Looking back, she doesn't exactly remember how she made her case to Jim, perhaps something about moving closer to her job at the Italian restaurant. As Jim recalls, Willow had asked to enroll at Foothills Education Charter High School, which offered night and online classes for at-risk students in Athens. At first, Jim said no. Recently divorced, he couldn't leave Sadie alone to pick up Willow. Jim didn't think his 16-year-old daughter should live on her own yet. But Willow argued that it might get her through high school, especially after she had continued to fail classes in 10th grade. Since then, Jim felt she had been showing signs of progress in the classroom. He countered, if you keep making progress, maybe when you're 17, we can rent a house for you. When that birthday came, Willow, as many teenagers do, held her dad to his word. Jim worried he might push her away for good if he put his foot down. So in the summer of 2015, he offered a compromise. Willow can get her own place if she spent a few nights a week at Jim's. Willow soon found a red brick ranch with a large enough yard for her dog, Gucci. She found a roommate, a 26-year-old Apple technician, to sign the $1,000 a month fleece. After moving in, she turned the spare bedroom into a small recording studio she filled with her father's old equipment. Willow's newfound freedom, however, didn't free her from struggle. Her grades slipped. Her mental health regressed. She was fired by her boss at the Italian restaurant. Willow had her shift covered so she can go to the Atlanta airport to pick up Jim. Her coworker, however, didn't show up. Then Willow's roommate moved out because of a drinking problem. Willow filled out scores of job applications, including fast food restaurants like Arby's and McDonald's. No one called back. Following a bout with tonsillitis, she sold leftover prescription painkillers to a drug dealer to pay her bills. When that money dried up, a friend recommended a website called Seeking Arrangements, a matchmaking service once described by the New York Times as a down-and-dirty marketplace where older, moneyed men and cute young women engage in brutally frank transactions. Willow didn't want to be an escort, but she lacked self-confidence in part because she remembered her mother's conservative family long ago, writing her off as bound to be either addicted, pregnant, or homeless. Curious but reluctant, she signed up, drawing a line at no sexual encounters, and soon she saw easy money come her way. One man gave her two months' rent for sharing a meal at a Waffle House. That fall, whenever Jim asked about her house, Willow evaded his questions. But right before Christmas, Jim discovered that she had been fired from the Italian restaurant months earlier. When he confronted Willow, tears ran down her face. To cover the rent, Willow explained, she had been drawing from her savings. When Jim pressed, Willow accused Jim of not trusting her, 
but she kept the seeking arrangements work a secret. In January 2016, five years after her first visit to the grocery on home, Willow returned with Jim, excited to share the stage once again. This time, she played a few of her songs on her own before Jim took the stage at his, in his usual seat. After a few songs, he opened up to the audience about their relationship, something he rarely discussed on stage. A few songs after that, Willow joined her father on a song in tribute to Kimya Dawson. He then ended with Sweet Bird of Mystery, finally playing the song live after letting it collect dust for so long. Willow learned how Jim once thought he wouldn't be a part of her life. Picking simple chords on his electric guitar, he closed his eyes and sang, going back to the nervous days before his bluebird was born. I wish you good luck in the future. Sweet bird of mystery, find summer breezes in your hair. A on a Friday night, three months after the grocery performance, Jim opened a Facebook message from a stranger. He figured it might be fan mail. Instead, he stared into a screen in disbelief. The stranger wrote, My husband is a lot of things, but he is not dangerous. She explained how her 50-year-old husband had met Willow through sinking arrangements. After discovering his emotional infidelity, she warned Jim about Willow's actions. She had a child who was the same age. Many of the men on this site probably are dangerous, and this is no place for a teenage girl, she added. Sadness, terror, anger, and guilt all flooded Jim's mind. He thought about the little clues, the takeout meals Willow always seemed to be eating, the vintage clothes she was always wearing. Willow's finances didn't add up, launching him into a spiral of questions. How did she pay for it? How did I miss the signs? Is she okay? In way over his head, Jim called his ex-girlfriend, Megan, whom he had been dating after divorcing Sadie's mother, Robin. Jim and Megan, who had developed a close bond with his daughters, had split up a few days earlier. Nevertheless, Jim hoped she might help for Willow's sake. The next morning, as Jim walked the aisles of a local flea market, trying to calm his mind, Megan called back and agreed to help. They drove over to Willow's place and knocked on the front door, which slowly cracked open. I need to come in, Jim said. He pushed open the door kicked out one of Willow's best friends who had crashed on the couch and instructed his daughter to sit in the living room. He asked, do you want to tell me about where this money's coming from? Willow broke down. She admitted to seeing 15 clients, some multiple times. They, they were doctors and construction workers, fathers and husbands. From what Jim gathered, each one paid at least $200 a visit, sometimes 10 times as much. It netted her more than $20,000 over eight months. Willow explained that these men came to her looking for emotional companionship, not sex. In a cascade of confessions, Willow also opened up about some other troubles. She had bought knives, concerned about a sex offender who lived across the street, and her suicidal thoughts had returned. Jim was speechless, and Megan's insistence Willow gathered a few belongings and moved back to Jim's, sleeping most of that day. In the coming days, Jim cooked healthy foods instead of ordering takeout. When Willow needed a ride, Jim drove her to school. 
As they cleared out the rental house over 10 days, Jim saw the trappings of his daughter's mental illness. Dishes stacked in the sink, vintage clothes in piles three feet high, a hundred pairs of scattered shoes. Behind on a rent, Jim forced Willow to hold a yard sale to sell those belongings bought with money from seeking arrangements. As he cleaned the house, Willow sorted the clothes. On one of the final days in the rental house, as Jim cleared debris from the backyard, mulling dark thoughts about his daughter's future, he caught a glimpse of Willow standing outside in torn blue jeans, staring into the distance, beyond the life she was purging. A few feet to the right, a lone blue bird landed on top of a chain-link fence. The bird perched there for a while, looking around, chirping blissfully. Before the bird flew away, Jim took a picture of the two side by side, a reminder of the sanctuary that now seemed so far away. Not long after the yard sale, Willow told Jim she was moving to Atlanta. Mom was sick, she said, and needed her help. Plus, Willow was nearly 18 and ready to leave home. After a dispute on Father's Day 2016, Willow left home with Gucci, sleeping in her car or on the couches of boys she met on Tinder, before eventually finding a place in Atlanta. As he tried to imagine the next few years of Willow's life, Jim remembered his own teenage years and how badly he wanted to escape the South. In Searching for the Wrong Eye Jesus, a 2003 documentary about him, he recounted how he had to leave the South before he could love it. Only when he returned, many years later, did he recognize the complex beauty of the pine trees, the boggy swamps, the rusty cars, the junkyards full of hidden art. Similarly, he knew Willow had to go her own way. The following winter, Willow drove out to Southern California. She found a place in Los Angeles, bought an old Mercedes-Benz, and got a job at a trendy restaurant. Willow had started to grasp the advice Jim had given her in her worst moments, and it helped her become a better version of herself. In particular, Jim always reminded her to be aware that she had tunnel vision that led to, in good times and bad, her thinking too narrowly about a specific task at hand. He urged her to channel that part of herself into building a new life that made her happy. When Willow returned home that Christmas, she felt at ease in her old bedroom in the Winterville home. Sadie was around, and the sisters wandered through the nearby woods. Before flying back, Willow gave Jim a Christmas gift, a Western-style shirt, along with a small card cut in the shape of a heart. Below a set of her doodles, she wrote a simple message that was enough to bring Jim to tears. I am the person I am today because of you. I couldn't and wouldn't ask for anything more. I love you. Bluebird. On a freezing November night, Jim stood in the back of the grocery on home, watching Willow on stage. Dressed in all black, she sang into the microphone, sounding like the star he had heard years earlier. In her nearly two years out in California, she had not only grown more responsible, finding jobs and apartments, 
but had rediscovered her love for music, writing songs and practicing the guitar. She had fallen unexpectedly into a contract with Big Deal, a publishing company whose roster includes Roseanne Cash, Sharon Van Eden, and St. Vincent. For Thanksgiving, she brought home her partner, Andrew Weissen, the long-haired guitarist of Group Love, whom Jim affectionately described as a 23 million YouTube view rock star willing to wash the dishes at my house. The best Jim could tell, Willow seemed happier than ever. She was smiling back at Andrew, who accompanied her on acoustic guitar. When Willow's set ran long, cutting a bit into Jim's, he let her take all the time she needed to finish. When he took the stage, Jim quipped, this will officially be the last time that she opens for me. With Willow on her own, Jim had finally mustered the courage to put Sweet Bird of Mystery out into the world. The final track on his newly released album, Waffles, Triangles, and Jesus, opens with an old recording of a two-year-old Willow singing the hymn, Jesus Loves Me, into her karaoke machine. But on that chilly night at the grocery, Jim revisited his oldest songs, playing his debut record, Wrong-Eyed Jesus, in its entirety for the first time since its 1997 release. When Jim sang, he shut his eyes, as if trying to mentally picture the photographs that accompanied those songs. When Jim finished the final notes of The Road That Leads to Heaven, the final track of Wrong-Eyed Jesus, he went to pack up his gear. Before he could, Matt Arnett, the grocery's owner and promoter, asked if the crowd wanted to hear one more song. And uh, I wrote this about my daughter and my, uh, when she was little, uh, I, I'd never ha- thought of having kids. And uh, then there's suddenly this little person staring at me. Uh, and I wanted to tell her so badly that I loved her, but uh, you know, the Eskimos, they have... this is the first one. Jim strummed the opening melody of Bluebird, making his way through the first few verses. As he picked his guitar, he looked at Willow, who had rested her head on Andrew's shoulder. Long ago, Jim had realized that while he would never be a perfect father, he could be one who persevered. Now, if he reflected long enough, Jim could see how his world had changed. He had grown more patient and learned to be less selfish. He understood that, even when he made mistakes, the journey of fatherhood had brought him closer to the sanctuary those bluebirds once symbolized. On stage, he sang, Me, I found someone to love more than rain. To finish the third verse of Bluebird. Halfway through the fourth, he blanked on the lyrics. He's kept strumming, trying to remember the words he'd written years ago. Then, from the crowd, came Willow's voice. From her seat, she sang the words softly, hoping to jog her dad's memory. Jim seemed comforted by the presence of her voice. He looked at her and leaned into his mic. Come sing it with me.
Thanks for listening. That was Max Blau reading his story, How Jim White Helped His Bluebird Spread Her Wings. Regular Hear Tell listeners are expecting an interview with the writer that usually follows the story, but we're going to move that discussion to its own episode, which will be out soon. Stay tuned. The music on this episode comes from Jim White and Willa Martin. This exit music is by Big Mean Sound Machine. To learn more about Hear Tell and the Low Residency MFA in Narrative Nonfiction program at the University of Georgia, type www.bit.ly slash Podcast into your browser. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story.